Bart uh, touched on, um, he kind of raised some questions about control. Um, who's in control? Are, is the world in control? Is God in control? Are the people of God in control? And he talked about how, really, as humanity, we have this illusion that we're in control. Um, but then it acknowledged there's a lot of really hard questions about how we consider the fact that God's in control of this world that seems so broken. And he pretty much told me he left the hardest questions unanswered so he could watch me struggle this week. So, well played, Pastor Bart, well played. Um, let me open us uh, in a word of prayer. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth or the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Amen. Um, I was at a debate between an atheist and a Christian in college, and I remember um, after the debate ended, the moderator opened the floor for people in the audience to ask any questions, and this uh, guy, probably in his 60s, I'd say, got up to the mic, directed his question to the Christian, and said, kind of with a smirk on his face, I'm wondering if you could tell me why it is that prayer with cold medicine helps my sickness go away. But prayer without cold medicine doesn't quite do the trick. Why do you think that might be? And he just kind of looked at the Christian with this smug look on his face like, I just completely dismantled Christianity. I thought the, the Christian answered well, but I remember the cynicism in that guy's voice was almost tangible. I mean, only a superstitious person would suppose that prayer to some god affects the recovery time of my sickness. Um, I mean, let's, let's get real. Prayer is only helpful if it's combined with NyQuil, which is what he was saying, right? Um, you know, secularism is a potent force, isn't it? The, the jadedness towards God, the church, the world, um, the skepticism, the cynicism, we feel it. At least if you're engaging culture at all <laughs> these days, you feel it, don't we? It's pressing in on us. And even as the people of God, uh, it can seem like, as we look out at the world, that if anything's going to get done, it's going to be done by human effort and willpower. Um, and so the battle wages in each of us to believe that God's spirit is at work in the world. That everything that gets done isn't simply done because of human might, power, resources, education, technology, whatever else. In the community of returned exiles that Zechariah spoke to and ministered to dealt with the same age-old questions that the people of God deal with. Will we believe that the Spirit of God is in our midst? Or do we believe that if anything is going to get done, it's going to be done by human might and power? So let me give us a little bit of history as we jump into Zechariah chapter 4, which is where I'll be today. Um, so history nerds, these are the moments in church you live for. And if you hate history, this too shall pass. And we'll soon be history. Um, all right, so Judah was exiled by Babylon, the empire of Babylon. I touched on this last month when I preached on Lamentations, and Pastor Bart touched on it when he preached on Obadiah. They came and conquered Judah, exiled them all over their empire, and kind of to destroy their sense of national identity, right? Babylon was conquered by another empire named Persia, 
And Persia was pretty tolerant as far as overlords go. They kind of allowed for people to have their own religion. They had kind of religious tolerance. They encouraged all these exiled people under Babylon to go back to your homelands. And they even encouraged all these peoples to rebuild their temples. And so Judah was one of those nations that was encouraged to go back to their homeland and rebuild their temple. Um, Persia even appointed a guy named Zerubbabel to be the governor of the province of Judah, who actually was a descendant, a royal descendant of David, Israel's high king. So that could be a risk, right, of putting someone in charge who was part of the royal line, but that was kind of Persia's way. They tried to be a little bit nicer to people. And so the Jews came back to the land in Jerusalem, and they're just this struggling, impoverished community, probably only about 50,000 people in this 17-mile radius around Jerusalem at this time. I mean, they have nothing. And they get to work on the temple. They quickly rebuild the altar so they can begin offering sacrifices to God again, which hadn't happened in decades. But then um, the work just kind of stalled out. They were just too weak and poor to complete the temple project. And so work stalled for about 17 years. And it's into that setting that the prophet Zechariah and his, uh, I guess, friend Haggai uh, began prophesying to the people, um, saying, we got to finish building this temple for God. And there are a lot of skeptics saying, like, it's never going to get done. We just can't do it. But there, this is kind of that, that scene. So with that said, let me read Zechariah 4 for us. Um, okay. And the angel, uh, and the angel of the Lord, sorry, an angel who talked with me came again and awoke, awakened me like a man who's awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lamps on each of, uh, on seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. Trippy, right? It gets worse. Uh, and there are two olive trees by it, one on the right and one uh, of the bowl, one on, on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Again, he's the governor. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know the Lord has sent me to you. Forever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. You know, verse 10, I'll go back to that real quick. Uh, Zechariah is honest about the state of things, which are bleak. The odds are stacked against them. There's obviously a lot of skeptics who Zechariah says, you're going to rejoice uh, when we're actually going to get this done. These people who are despising the day of small beginnings, where we, we get that phrase, right? Um, this is a, a depiction from a, a Jewish Bible from Spain in 1299, and it's a depiction of this vision in Zechariah. So what you've got here 
And this vision is this lampstand, the Hebrew menorah, uh, which kind of symbolizes uh, the temple. Of course, this whole context is about the rebuilding of God's house and God's temple. And and then you've got uh, these seven lamps, which the passage goes on to talk about are the seven eyes of God that range all throughout the earth, watching everything happening on the earth. And, And then there's these two olive trees, which in the context speak of the governor, Zerubbabel, and the high priest, Joshua, who are the anointed ones to complete this task of rebuilding the temple. And they're anointed to sustain the work by the Spirit. And kind of in the imagery, there's this continual flow. Um, you know, I don't know if how the physics works on this, but the oil goes into the bowls, up and into the bowls, and then continually supplies the lamp so they never stop burning. That's kind of something like the image. Um, in verse 6 and 7, we come to these, these profound words, right? These well-known words. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Um, and the, the word basically is, it's not going to be human might and manpower that's going to accomplish this, because they don't have that, um, or resources. God's spirit is going to be the deciding factor in the completion of this temple, um, there's this joke about a, a uh, man who, uh, his daughter got engaged really quickly, and so he was going to meet his future son-in-law for the first time. And he, he said to his co-workers, I've got a list of questions I want to ask this guy uh, when I meet him. And so on Saturday morning, he invites his son-in-law out, his future son-in-law out to uh, coffee, and they kind of begin talking, and he starts asking him the questions weighing on his mind. Do you have a job? I mean, I know you just finished college and all, but do you have a plan for how you want to support yourself and my daughter? And the young man said, well, God will provide. He said, okay, well, uh, do you have a a place to live, like an apartment or house lined up for after the wedding? He kind of looked at him again and said, God will provide. The father kind of paused for a second and said, son, do you have any money? Like, Financial nest egg, some savings, something like that. And the guy looked at him and really intently and said, God will provide. The next day, the father-in-law is at work. His coworkers are eager to hear how the meeting went. And the father said, I kind of like the kid. He thinks I'm God. <laughs> you know, we laugh about that. <laughs> But it can often feel like if anything's going to get done in the world, it's going to be done by human effort, right? Which leads me to a point I want to hit right on the head this morning. I don't want to dance around it or allude to it. I want to hit it right on the head. And it's this idea called humanism. So some of you may be thinking, what's humanism? Is that like the worship of humans or something? You wouldn't be far off on that, actually. Um... I want to try to define humanism for us this morning because as 21st century readers of Zechariah chapter 4, we're engaging this text as people who live in a thoroughly humanistic society. Um, And again, you may be like, gosh, why are we talking about this in church? Well, because we simply have to. Is that good enough? (laughs) Uh, We just just have to. Because most of the people that you come in contact with have drunk the Kool-Aid. The people you come in contact with and live next door to 
are thoroughly humanistic in their outlook on life. Now, they're not going to introduce themselves, hi, I'm Roger the humanist. But for all practical purposes, they are. So with that said, um, I want to try to get some definitions on the table for us. I just grabbed some of these from um, different humanist associations. And, um, so the American Humanist Association says, humanism is a progressive philosophy of life that, without belief in God or other supernatural beliefs, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good. So we don't need some belief in God, um, some invented ethical system that people made up anyway. We need to try to look at, um, kind of forge our own sense of ethics in this world that can make the world a better place, and that's our ability and our responsibility to do that. Um, Humanist Magazine will say, humanism is a rational philosophy inspired by science, uh, sorry, informed by science, inspired by art, and motivated by compassion affirming the dignity of each human being. Um, it supports the maximization of individual liberty and opportunity. So the idea is that reason and scientific inquiry are what inform this worldview, um, and we, but we want to get inspiration from the arts and things like that, and compassion is what motivates us in our worldview. Um, and again, this affirming of human dignity and championing individual liberty and opportunity. This goes on and says, humanism thus derives the goals of life from human need and interest rather than from theological or ideological abstractions and asserts that humanity must take responsibility for its own destiny. So they're going to say, we're going to look out at the world and see human needs in the world and let that help us construct our goals in life. We're not going to... Uh, get our goals from some invented theological system that was made up by humans anyway. We're going to look out at the world and say, what, is, what do humans need? And let that drive our goals. Um, and we need to do this. We need to take charge of our own destiny, as it were. We can't rely on some, some uh, belief beyond that. Humanism is a belief that when people are free to think for themselves using reason and knowledge as their tools, they are the best able to solve the world's problems. So you kind of get the idea, right? Um, so humanists are going to uh, give us statistics like the 2009 Gallup poll, which surveyed 114 nations to find that religiosity is highest in the world's poorest countries. Religion seems to be a crutch for those with less education and less resources. But, they continue, more secular nations lead the way in human advancement and social equality and technological development. So humanists are going to argue for a proactive view of life, right? They're not waiting for some magical or supernatural intervention. We, not some god in the sky, are the solution if there's one to be found, right? That's the idea. One of, the, one of the best uh, examples of humanist messaging these days is probably TED Talks. And I, I love a good TED Talk, mostly because I just like learning something new. Um, but 99% of TED Talks are thoroughly humanistic in their approach to the world, right? 
Um, but, it's, but the ideas are mainstream, of course, right? I mean, most of what's on TV, a lot of what's pretty much everything coming out of Hollywood, most of our public policies reflect a humanistic worldview. And at the same time, humanism is a driving force for human achievement and uh, education and uh, justice and social equality and um, medical research, all this kind of stuff, right? But also trying to discover a solidarity with all people that transcends national boundaries and things like that. And so there's a lot of things about humanism that Jesus-loving Christians can get on board with and should get on board with and should celebrate, right? Amen? I mean, we're for medical research, right? And people not being oppressed, right? <laughs> I think. Um, so the sticking point, though, for us as Christians is the lie that we're on our own in the universe. So we need to band together as a species, take charge of our own destiny, and make the world a better place entirely by our own might and power. The only thing holding us back is our own misplaced sense of inadequacy and dependence on some god. Well, Christianity doesn't have quite so optimistic a view of humanity. And as Pastor Bart shared last week, um, it's easy for us to buy into the illusion that we can control our own destiny. Um, so what does all this have to do with Zechariah chapter 4? Well, the Bible repeatedly confronts us with words like Zechariah 4.6. Not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Um, when I was in college, my parents led um, me and a group of American college students to Tajikistan. And I don't know, 15 or 20 American students uh, went over there and we dormed with 15 or 20 Tajik college students who were all Muslim. And um, it was kind of a language cultural exchange program where we shared like our, our lives and some of our culture, but obviously religion comes up in that. And uh, we had a Bible study that we offered once a week that uh, was optional, but pretty much all the uh, Muslim students came. And I remember one day, and th this was a really shaping, this was a really shaping day for me in my uh, just development as a follower of Christ. I remember one day, we were talking about the resurrection of Christ, and we were in one of the, the gospel accounts of the resurrection, and there was this guy named Fios who said, why should I believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And I looked at him and I said, Great question, Fios. We're, hey, we're about to go to lunch. Like, let's talk about this over lunch. And then another guy, who is actually my language partner, named Jahon, goes, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And we all kind of looked at him like, oh my gosh, really? Like the Christians in the group did. And he said, yes, seeing Gabe and seeing how Gabe lives his life, it's enough for me. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. At which point I thought, this is my single greatest day as a Christian. <laughs> like, I just need to go ahead and retire. Like, stop while I'm ahead. Um, and I said, John, that's amazing. Um, so so we, we got in the car, and, and, and we're going towards lunch. And on the way, I'm, so I, at this point, I'm, I'm getting my minor in apologetics, um, which is like rational defense of the faith. Um, and I, I've, I just learned like the five-point argument for the resurrection. So I'm sitting here like rehearsing in my head, 
thinking of like how I can just crush Fios once we sit down, and um, how and how awesome that's going to be. And so I'm on my way there. I'm kind of getting, you know working it through the finer points of that argument, and I'm about to sit down. We get to our our, our restaurant. I'm about to sit down, and the Holy Spirit so clearly said to me, "I'm going to re- reveal myself to Fios." And I was about to sit down, and I thought, this really throws off my plan here. (laughs) But I decided to go with it. And so I sat down, and I looked at Fios, and I said, Fios, I promise you, if you ask Jesus to reveal himself to you, he will reveal himself to you. I can't say recommend this in all situations, by the way. Um, So I did. I said, Fios, I promise you, if you ask Jesus to reveal himself to you, he will reveal himself to you. And he said, okay. I said, awesome. Well, tonight after our day's activities are done, let's pull away and we'll, we'll ask Jesus to reveal himself to you. So he said, great. So that, that night I kind of pulled Fios aside and I said, are you ready? He said, yeah. And so kind of in his own way, he asked Jesus to reveal yourself to me. A few weeks pass and one day we're um, out at this lake, I remember, in Tajikistan and Fios comes to me and he says, Gabriel, Gabriel, I had a vision? It's like, what? I had a vision. I was like, a vision? A vision, a vision. Yeah, yeah, a vision, a vision. Um, he's like, I had a vision, and, and in my vision, uh, I, that night, sorry, I should say, he said, that night when we prayed, uh, I went to bed, and I closed my eyes, and I saw this, this burning picture of Jesus on the cross. And he was really struck by it. And so he, it shocked him. And he said, I opened my eyes, and then I closed my eyes again, and then I saw an empty cross. And I said, Fios, that's amazing. In that first vision, Jesus was showing you his love for you, that he died for you. And did you know that Jesus said that anyone who would follow me would take up his cross and become my follower? That empty cross is Jesus inviting you to take up your cross and follow him. Fios said, whoa. And six weeks later, the missionaries there led Fios to Christ. Let's go back to that day. You guys remember Jehon, the other guy who said, um, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. Seeing Gabe, it's enough for me. So that same night that me and Fios asked Jesus to reveal himself to him, I came to Jehon and I said, Jehon, that was really amazing what you said earlier, that you believe Jesus rose from the dead. And he said, yeah. I believe in Jesus, I believe in the Bible, I believe in the Quran, I believe in Muhammad. I thought, oh, okay, I believe in everything, he said. And that, that single day was such a stark example to me of what happens when someone's impressed with Gabe versus when someone's impressed with Jesus. Only one led to salvation. Being impressed, people being impressed with you apart from the revelation of Christ means very little at the end of the day. In Zechariah, the last several chapters end with this theme of the people of God as God's flock and God as their shepherd. Psalm 23, to me, just remains one of the most powerful passages of God as our shepherd and we as his sheep. The Lord is is my shepherd, David writes. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by still waters. He restores my soul. 
He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Francis Schaeffer said, As my son Frankie put it, humanism has changed the 23rd Psalm. They began, I am my shepherd. Then, sheep are my shepherd. Then, everything is my shepherd. Finally, nothing is my shepherd. You know, of all domesticated animals, sheep are one of the most dependent upon someone for their every need. And you may think that a better metaphor to describe our dependence on God might be of a baby. You know, David could have opened Psalm 23 with the words, The Lord is my nursing mother, I shall not want. And sure, a baby is dependent upon their parent for their every need, right? Um, But there's a reason the Bible repeatedly uses the metaphor of a sheep and a shepherd to describe our relationship with God. Because what's the difference between the dependence of a baby upon their parent and the dependence of a sheep upon its shepherd? Do you know? It's exactly right. At some point, you outgrow your utter dependence upon your parent for your every need. In fact, a parent may at some point find themselves dependent on their child later in life for their needs, right? But a sheep will never outgrow its dependence upon its shepherd. The day will never come when it will leave the fold, venture into the wild, and make its own way in the world. It wouldn't last the week, right? And that's why the sheep and shepherd metaphor continues to be a timeless picture of our dependence on God that we don't outgrow. You know, it was desire for autonomy that motivated the original sin in the garden. Do you know that? If you take the fruit, you'll be like God, guys. The serpent offered Eve independence. You can become your own God. Now, I think the original sin in the garden can be reduced to the sin of pride and unbelief, but the motivation was gaining independence from God. And it's so easy for me, I think, as I look at my life, to slip into that kind of living. You know, I, I appreciate the garden you've given me, God. I'm grateful that you made me in your image and for the abilities you've given me. I, I appreciate all that. I really do. And I can take it from here. That pride is exactly what led to the fall of humanity. Exactly that. And its presence in my heart shows me that I have no place to judge Adam and Eve. Were I in their place, I'm confident I would have done exactly what they did. I know I would have. Maybe you're a little holier than me, I don't know. But actually you're not, you would have done the same thing. But, you know, in that moment, I don't think that Adam and Eve saw that their, their disobedience was some just utter rebellion against God. I, don't, I really don't. I th- you know, they walked and talked with God. They, I, I, I have to imagine they had a genuine love and affection for God. How could they not, right? I, re- I really can't imagine that they were hoping to just burn their bridge to God. They wanted nothing more to do with God ever again. I, I don't think that's in any way what was going on in their mind. But 
suddenly they begin to see that bridge as a leash. That was the lie. That's the idea that the serpent whispered to Eve. Oh, God has us on a leash. You won't surely die. If you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. Come on, Eve. Don't you see what's going on here? If, if the serpent were a southern copperhead, he would have said, oh, Eve, bust your heart. You're just an idiot, Eve, but you mean well. Like, don't, don't you see what's going on here, Eve? God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and, and you'll be just like him. He's keeping that tree from you, Eve, to keep you dependent on him. He keeps that knowledge for himself, and he does that to keep you dependent on him, to keep you coming back to him like a dumb little sheep. And that's what you are, Eve. That's what you are. What I'm talking about here is Christian humanism, right? It tips its hat to God, thanks him for the good gifts in our life, and then presumes to take it from here. You've equipped me, God, and so now I'll run this family. I'll run this business. I'll run this church. And the scary thing is that oftentimes we get away with it. I mean, that's the terrifying thing about this. Non-Christians, even atheists, can raise great kids. And if you don't know that, then you need to make some friends that aren't Christians. Non-Christians can create healthy workplace and business environments that promote human dignity, target workplace discrimination, and champion equal pay for women. Large churches can be built on humanistic methods, but what they don't know is that their souls are like wandering sheep, hungry, weary, bruised. And it's passages like Psalm 23 and Zechariah 4 that are the antidote to Christian humanism because these passages champion God as your shepherd and you as his sheep. And just like Adam and Eve in the garden, a sheep that pursues its own independence is a sheep that pursues its own death. We must follow the leadership of our shepherd. He's good. You know, these days, whenever our daughter Adeline sees a mole on my body, she points and says, oh, boo-boo. You know, as we go through life, we better learn how to identify things in the world around us. And as Christians, we are, each of us, mystics, aren't we? That is, we believe that there are things in this world and events in our life that are the hand of God. We do believe this, right? Just making sure I'm in the right church this morning. I'll continue. Um, Y'all are still on the uptake there. We believe that there are things in our life that are the hands of God. We're mystics. We are. One way or another. Um, When was the last time, that being said, that you said about something God did that. And if nothing else, the people of God have got to be a people who can point somewhere at some point and say, God did that. The Spirit of God accomplished that. Otherwise, we might as well be humanists ourselves, right? If we can't at some point do that. 
Um, and I'm not just talking about miracles, although, of course, miracles are included in what I'm talking about, but I'm also talking about relationships, events, circumstances, breakthroughs, seasons in your life, hope restored, love rekindled, forgiveness given, sin grieved over, mercy towards the refugee, a smile at the cashier, an idea to bless your spouse. God did that. God did that. God did that. And I think the question that Zechariah 4 is asking essentially is, what if I told you you weren't on your own in this thing called life, guys? It's not all on you to get this temple rebuilt. It's not all on you to save your marriage. It's not all on you, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And that requires faith, right? Can we just be honest about that? It also requires a revelation in the experience of the move of the spirit in your life so that you can identify the things in your life as the hand of God. So that you can more and more say, God did that. God did that. You know, think, think about it for a second. Um, it's perfectly reasonable to suggest that after many years of struggle back in the land, the returned Jewish exiles were able to rebuild their lives and their temple, even though the temple they built was a shadow of the previous temple's splendor. They did this after years of hardship and toil, even after many skeptics said they'd never get it done. Challenging? Yes. Supernatural? No. This is yet another testament to what humans can do when they band together, even in the most desperate situations. You could read the story that way and write God right out of the story. And of course, that's exactly how a secular historian would read it. But from the perspective of faith, the Spirit of God is the deciding factor in the rebuilding of the temple. His Spirit, not human might, not human power, but his spirit. Zechariah prophesied to Zerubbabel that when he placed the capstone at the completion of the temple, it would be done to shouts of grace, grace to it. And that has a twofold meaning in the Hebrew, the original language. At one level, grace, grace to it speaks of the beauty of the temple that the people are witnessing as it's now finally completed. And at another level, grace, grace to it, speaks of God's grace and provision that they made it to this day. That is my story. Because while it's possible that I could look at my life and say that I and the support system around me, in sheer luck, are responsible for all the good things I've seen in my life, I can't help but look at my story and see the grace of God all over it. I can't help but see the beauty in the way he's loved me, in the way he's loved the world around me. I can't help but look at my story and say, grace, grace to it. Not by my might or by my power, but by the spirit of God. And God's desire is always to have a temple by that I mean his desire is always to have a place where he can touch 
the earth with his presence and cohabitate with man and woman. A temple that we might experience life and that God may be worshipped in our living. Jesus said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. I'm going to invite the worship team to go and come on up. We've found true life. That's not a cliche. <laughs> I mean, really, we have found true life. The rest of the world is kidding themselves. Um, the flesh, or we could say human ability, didn't provide this life. A college degree doesn't better reveal it. Computers can't decode it. Medical research can't enhance it. There is eternal life in Christ. And it's the Spirit who gives us this life. The Spirit who's the breath and wind of God speaks this life to you in Christ. And it's a life that we receive by faith. By faith in Jesus. You know, the Jews that Zechariah was ministering to, again, they just dealt with the same kind of questions that the people of God deal with today. Do we believe that God is for us? Do we believe that God is inviting us to build with him? Will we despise the days or the moments of small things, of small beginnings? Do I believe that it all depends on human effort and willpower? Or do we believe the prophetic word then and now? The Spirit of God is in our midst, and it's He who empowers us. I'm going to invite you to stand. We just want to, as we close out today, just sing of the grace of God that is all over our stories. God, we just thank you for your grace, your presence, and your beauty in our lives. We invite you, Lord, to romance us again today and send us out into this world that needs the hope and the life of Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.